Hello, and thanks for joining me for episode 2 of Hips and Dips. I want to thank everyone for all the feedback I've received so far, as well as showing my appreciation for the follows and likes on both Instagram and Spotify. If you haven't yet had the chance, I'd implore you to go and listen to episode 1 with Charlotte. I've already received lots of great feedback regarding her story and her positivity which comes across in the episode. So this week I'm on my way to meet up with Dominic McGeeky, an ex-professional rugby player and university graduate who has now found a compromise between rugby and his new passion for teaching. Dom played county rugby for Surrey throughout the age group system as well as representing John Fisher School, including being first 15 captain. He was then picked up by Harlequins Academy before choosing to attend Cardiff Metropolitan University and achieving a degree in sports coaching, as well as becoming first 15 captain. Following graduation, he signed for championship side London Scottish, where he went on to be able to achieve his lifelong ambition of becoming a professional sportsman. His path to professionalism, however, was unconventional by modern standards, and was not one without challenges and setbacks. So I'm really hoping he can offer some interesting insights into the demands and issues which are associated with being a professional sportsman, as well as some general interesting insights into injuries as a whole. At this point, I feel I should declare me and Dom have a pre-existing friendship. We both attended John Fisher School up until 2013, although we didn't really share company until the twilight of our time there. Whilst in the sixth form, we were both selected as Olympic ambassadors ahead of the 2012 Games, and that's when our friendship really started to develop. And in 2013, we both toured New Zealand as part of the school rugby squad. Admittedly, one of us had a slightly larger impact, but I'll leave that for you to decide which one. I do, however, still carry the scars from that tour. Uh, Not from an on-field incident, but instead from being sat next to, for the duration of a 26-hour flight, Dom, scared of flying McGeeky. My arm was pretty much in a vice-like grip from the moment the seatbelt signs went on. Now, the initial plan for today was to meet up with Dom and we're going to go through some rugby pre-season-esque drills um, to sort of carry on this theme of having that social sport interaction before each podcast. However, ironically, for a podcast called Hips and Dips, my knee ligament injury has actually been aggravated this week and therefore I can't take part. We might as well look at a new title, perhaps. The Bees Knees, Needle in a Haystack... No need for that. Knee Sunday. I mean, to be honest, none of them really have any legs, but um, I think you get the gist. So without further ado, let's get started. And that just leaves me time to say, touch, pause, engage. So Dom, welcome to the pod. Hello, nice to have me, thanks for having me, looking forward to being here. <laughs> Good, um, so once again we've been forced outside due to these tight uh, restriction laws in the UK. Seeing as we've been forced outside, it seemed only fitting that we would come here to Plough Lane in Purley, home to John Fisher Rugby, and a pitch which I'm sure holds some really happy memories for you. If I have to push you for one memory right now, what springs to mind? Oh, um, now you're asking that. There's obviously loads, not just from my final year at the school or my final sort of time in, this, in the first 15, but like from 
like early days like when we were in year seven and stuff and I remember like watching the first team and getting let out of school early to watch them in the quarterfinals of the Daily Mail Cup and beating Wick Gift and chance, stuff yeah, yeah yeah and the chance <laughs> um, but I'd probably say it has to be my last game at Plough Lane which uh, I remember was against High Wycombe um, and it was we won the game I think the score was like 26 18 or something but they were always like a really good school as well and like always have really super like proper competitive matches and um i remember actually it was the the day we played them was the same day as one of the harlequins under 18 games and i chosen to Never play choice. for school and i chose to play for school and it was the best decision i made um because that memory sticks um you know in at the forefront of my mind when i'm here I'm really surprised you didn't say Whitgift, to be honest. And, well, uh, and the big rivalry there. Yeah, true, but I mean, annoying. Well, I, don't, so I can't remember a time when we beat them at my at, at home. <laughs> I mean, we, in our last year, I, we played and we lost 11-10 at their place. Um, and then in the year before that, when we were in Lower Sixth, I lost, we lost again, like one point. So it's got to be the High Wycombe win, hasn't it? Really <laughs> it's funny, actually. I was, um, I was down in Windsor the other day. I took a walk past Eton School, and you can see oh, their yeah. pictures. And uh, it's amazing to think that was what seven, seven, eight years ago we played there. Yeah, uh, and those sort of games, and we've got that time's gone far too quickly. But uh, anyway, um, as we said last week, though, in the current state of the world, we can't really ignore coronavirus um, and the negative effects it's having on people physically, mentally, socially. As I said last week, it seems irresponsible not to mention it. So, Dom, how are you? How are you feeling in all those departments? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really good. I think, actually, I'm very lucky in terms of where I'm at now with my life. I think, if I'm being honest, if coronavirus had come about maybe 18 months, two years ago, probably would have been giving you a lot of different answers. Mm. Um, I'm very stable. Uh, I've got good people around me, good family. Um, good girlfriend, good set of friends. So you know, I can't really complain. Obviously, it's been a bit um, frustrating having to be locked up, especially like with the amount of sport that I'm used to doing, and um, sort of I like to obviously like socialise and being involved in rugby circles every week. You know, it's been tough to just put that all on pause. But generally, I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, I found in that gap between the first and sort of second lockdowns really enjoying the small things yeah which um, and really small things like i just really enjoyed going to the gym Mm -hmm. not so much the out the outcomes or getting fit or getting stronger whatever just generally being in a gym or being in a pub or or beer garden or just going for a walk all these small things actually seemed really enjoyable puts it back to perspective doesn't it i mean i was spent the first lockdown in um i was lucky enough to spend it in wales with my girlfriend in um in a small little village called lancarven and it was just beautiful, like, you know, somewhere where I'd never spend longer than a holiday of a week or two weeks. And, and then I was there for, what, six weeks, eight weeks. And it was, it gave me an opportunity to, like, really relax and take things into account that I've never yeah. really appreciated before, like, countryside. You know? Yeah, I've had, I've had so many people come up to me in the last, say, the last few months and just talking about how beautiful the UK mm-hmm. is. And mm-hmm. how, like, and I myself, I went up to Scotland and 
Ben Nevis and around that part of Scotland. I had friends who were down in Cornwall, some friends who went over to North Wales, and everyone just comes back saying, like, why did you waste this money going yeah, the I know. <laughs> traveling when we've got so much beauty in this country? It took me 25 years to make it up to Scotland. And, and it's know, funny, it's like, on, now all of a sudden we're sitting, or well, standing in Croydon, and you think, wow, look at this wonderful architecture in Croydon. <laughs> we're getting a bit too carried away. So it? many, so many nice walks around Croydon. <laughs> well, I've, I've seen oh, walk. yes, West Croydon, five o'clock in the morning, it's great. <laughs> right, anyway, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, we obviously have a pre-existing friendship, uh, but the last time I actually spoke to you was back in, I think it was 2016. Uh, we were in Bath, it was Bath versus Cardiff Met in the big varsity game, which of course uh, Bath won uh, in the end. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, surpri- I'm not surprised I remember actually, because we were discussing uni life and your impending graduation, and at this point you were at least several jars of lager deep and becoming rather incoherent. Uh, but since that conversation, I'm interested to find out where your journey's taken you in a rugby sense. I mean, you've had some highs, you've had some lows, but just sum up those last yeah. couple of years for me. Just quickly, did I play in that game? I don't remember. No, you did. You did. I remember you. I'm pretty sure you gave me oh, a penalty. Oh, at the end oh, oh I know it was the hot day. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did. Up, I did. I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, Down and on that bottom pitch, and then we watched the football afterwards. I remember. I remember. <laughs> Yeah, oh god. No, so, I don't know if you're drinking before or after the game. I was probably <laughs> throughout the day, I think, by the sounds of it, and the way I played. Um, yeah, so in regards to sort of since then, that was what, coming up to five years ago now. Um, excuse me, a lot has changed, really. I mean, I've. So I left Cardiff Met University, um, and I was sort of at a bit of a wit's end in terms of like where I was going to take my life. Like as you as you probably know, I share for the listeners. Like it was sort of no, there was no bones about it that from five years old, I've always wanted to be a professional player. It was a dream of mine, um, and it was an opportunity that I wasn't sure that I wanted to pursue. And I suppose we'll go into some more detail like later on about sort of in between sort of school and that period, which was quite important for me. But then moving from there, I I was a bit confused about what I wanted to do, and basically. I got the opportunity to sign for London Scottish. Um, I got a call randomly, completely out of the blue, um, by an agent um, who had sort of, he says he'd been following my career from when I was involved with the Harlequins when I was 18. And he just said, like, look, and if I'm being honest, I was probably got into London Scottish on a bit of a whim where they were at a financial loss standpoint. They were having their own financial fights with the SRU, Scottish Rugby Union. And it was difficult to know they didn't have any sort of stability or many players and there was just an opportunity for me to go in there and and I took that opportunity um I sort of wanted to and I envisaged it as being a stepping stone towards rekindling my relationship with the Harlequins and other premiership clubs um because there was a long-lasting relationship that sort of ended in a weird note when I went off to Wales and down in Cardiff to play for three years so my idea was that I'd re-sign so play for London Scottish, do well. My confidence was sky high. I then play for Harlequins and play for England. That was that was the end of the story, and that would be my That's my plan, dream. Yeah. Um, I didn't quite obviously work out that way. I I played under Peter Richards, um, who was a fantastic coach in terms of his knowledge um, and understanding the game. I learned so much in my first year, and I actually I actually in terms of appearances, I think I played quite a lot. I, I think I got almost. It was definitely over 20 appearances in the season, which considering I was coming out of university, 
with no men, not yeah. really much men's rugby experience other than what I've done. It takes time to adjust as well, doesn't oh, it? Oh, massively. To, uh, to go from the, the amateur, even though it's a high level of amateur, the amateur game to professional game. Yeah, exactly, so, huge. And I was yeah. playing Welsh Championship, which was just basically a fight every weekend against some brutal, um, mad guys from the middle of the valleys who just wanted to knock your teeth out every day. So then having to be involved in a professional environment where I trained full-time and had to make huge changes um, physically, um, you know, I thought I was fit. I just def definitely, definitely wasn't. And it took a lot of time to readjust. Now, a lot of those appearances for myself came off of the bench. Um, and again, like, in terms of actual minutes played, I didn't play that much rugby. Uh, so that was the first season. And then I stayed on at the club. Um, there was a sort of change up with management. Again, there was always an underlying financial problem with the club and... Um, that's something we can talk about a bit later on, but basically, yeah, I think London Scottish were alone in that. Yeah, the yeah, it was it was tough that you know, and, and and it was difficult financially for myself, and and then sort of a few more injuries came along in the second year, um, along with some other difficulties, um, and it just sort of it made me realise actually, do I want to do this? I was sort of losing the light at the end of the tunnel for the big mm. career of what I'd set up. The game time wasn't there for me. I I think it was a combination of like fitness and I started to doubt myself whether I was good enough or not um, because I'm a confidence person. I was always like, when I do something well, I like to be told I've done well. And I just, I wasn't getting that opportunity to get someone to tell me you're doing well because I wasn't playing. Um, and then I sort of got an opportunity. I got in touch with some great guys that I still speak to now. Matt Gold, who was our, as you know, our teacher at school, head of Mr. rugby at school, yeah, yeah. is a legend. <laughs> and Mike Davis, who is also known as just the biggest legend in rugby and school rugby across pretty much the whole of the UK. Uh, and they got me in touch with a guy called Sam Howard, who was, at the time when we were at school, was the director of rugby at Dulwich College. Okay. Um, and he was the DOR at Dulwich College for I think 15 years something like that quite a long time well established name in the game and he was coaching at the time at Old Altamians so he was the first team coach at Old Altamians and what had happened sort of a couple of years before this Old Altamians had risen through the league so they'd started literally pub rugby standard and are now as sort of as of two years ago when I signed there um, uh, National One side and they basically have this ambition to become a championship side and then a premiership side but the main attraction for for me personally to join the club was they were offering me an opportunity to train and do my PGC to train as a PE teacher okay um, and given I'd had my my sports coaching degree as an undergrad uh, it was able to they were able to sort of train me up through this their relationship with the school Elton College and then um play obviously sort of semi-professional rugby for the club so I would train in the gym in the mornings as a full like SSC program um, you know training in the evenings twice a week which was obviously a change from doing like a full weekly setup when I was yeah. at the London Scottish and then um, and then finished my qualification at the school so I did that for two years unfortunately a couple of things broke down um, there was an unfortunate death in the club of Basically, the main, the chairman, well, the main sponsor of the rugby club, the guy that started it all, a guy called Cobus Polson, who 
obviously I owe a lot to because he's now given me my new career as a teacher um, and he invested in me, he helped me out with some injuries and stuff as well and not just me but a lot of other people so unfortunately though his death did leave sort of a bit of a messy end between the school and the club and that relationship and as that broke down there just wasn't really a place for me at the school and the club anymore so I've now just signed at Blackheath in, uh, in the same league. Okay, yeah, so some really interesting points in there, which I think we're going to discuss a bit later on, particularly regarding like the rugby pyramid and mm. then um, perhaps why you made certain decisions you made, which are really interesting. Um, but, but yeah, so I'm very uh, conscious, I don't want this to become a rugby podcast, um, and I don't want this just to be a couple of rugby fans chewing the fat and talking for hours about memories from various rugby clubs and picking up fans 15 for a certain team or something like that. I want this to be very much talking about the injuries and sport as a whole, using rugby in this case as an example. But if you're human me just for the moment, if anyone here questions my level of research ahead of these podcasts, <laughs> uh, I'm about to blow your mind. I read an interview, um, well actually I read, read a general article by uh, Rugby World magazine, which uh, lists its 2013s uh, team of the year, so based on rugby players from Ireland and Britain at schoolboy level, and they've selected one to fifteen. Do you remember this being written? No, no, <laughs> I don't. I, I've gone. <laughs> <laughs> so if it was me, I can tell you'd be hung up in my house right now. <laughs> I think in multiple locations. So I know it's a reminder of this great day, but, um, but obviously you've had much bigger achievements than me. So on this list, um, I'll run through very quickly. So number 15 is Tom Penny. 14 is Zach Kilbridge from Wasps. 13, Charlie Eastham. 12 is Gary Ringrose, uh, wow. Leinster and Ireland international. I think he's had over 30 yeah, appearances for Ireland. Bad, he, yeah. Grand Slam winner, multiple Six Nations winner. Um, many people tip him to be the next Irish captain, which is obviously a great achievement. Interesting. Number 11, you've got Nick Haynes. Number 10, Rory Jennings from Clermont. Yeah, good lad. Uh, nine, uh, Jack Maplesden. Uh, eight, Magnus Bradbury, who plays yeah. for Edinburgh and Scotland. Um, yeah. Played in the last Six Nations. Seven, James Chisholm. Good lad. Slowly becoming a Harlequins legend. Number six is Sam Underhill from Bath yeah. in England. Played in the World Cup final, yeah, of course. Yeah, not a bad player. <laughs> uh, number five is Tom Ellis. Uh, number four is Dominic McGeeky. Oh, what a player. <laughs> <laughs> number three is Alex uh, Lundberg. Two is Cameron Nild. And one is Benno Urbano, who is currently a Bath player. Um, I don't think he's yet made his actual full England debut, but he's certainly an England player for the future. Yeah, I think he's on the line um, too, hasn't he? Yeah, and he certainly made a big impact at club level. Um so, firstly, I mean, there's a lot of great players on that list. I mean, who stands out for you on that list as a player you're honoured to be <coughs> Well, I mean, like, look, there's some of those boys that uh, obviously now become fantastic, incredible players. I think the the the, the one that, I don't know, the one that I, because I, I sort of, I think I, I know him personally and we went for a, a similar route until obviously uh, 18 or so, well, I suppose similar, but I, I, is James Chisholm like like I know him personally from when we played the odd game together, and he's actually just a really decent guy. And it's nice to see actually <clears throat> someone like him who's remained as like a one club man, and he's still involved in the Harlequins and has sort of 
almost like you say become part of the furniture even though he's 25 26 yeah. whatever i'm amazing you know? he's 25 yeah yeah because he seems to be around for, he's been so long he he has. He's, uh, for his late 20s. and that's what i mean and he was someone that when we were playing rugby you know of course there's those other guys that didn't really play much against obviously benno looking at your list now like benno Alex, um, Lundberg, and a couple others there we play against. But, you know, the big name was James Chisholm at that time. Mm. And so to be recognised as a big player at that time was, uh, that's a, you know, I'd see that as a bit of a, a nice throwback and a good memory. Well, it must be a hell of an honour. I said, if it was me, you'd definitely be up to <laughs> pride the place of the mantelpiece. Nah. Um, my, my brother's graduation thinks still on my mum's mantelpiece instead. But yeah, there's actually a more pressing reason I wanted to bring this up. Um, it wasn't purely here just to inflate your ego, which, um, which is <laughs> too late. Enough, to um, every player on this list actually has a caption next to their name, which I'm sure right. was written by the coach or uh, an observer for the newspaper. But um, they, each, so they each have this little caption, and that really gives an insight into the sort of player they are. So Gary Ringrose has next to his name the next Brian O'Driscoll, which is a a hell of a thing to be given as an 18-year-old player. Um, quite impressive, and I should keep his head with that. Um, other players talk about great kicking ability, great finishing, um, amazing hands, great distribution. These are sort of terms that were used. Mm. Yours actually says inspirational and selfless captain. Um, it doesn't say great passer. <laughs> it doesn't say great scorer. I'm not saying you aren't. Um, I'm not. <laughs> that term sort of selfless captain brings to mind people like Dylan Hartley and Chris Robshaw, Richie McCaw, international level. <clears throat> and it really sort of brings this image of a punishing and quite attritional style of rugby, not one of sort of grace and staying away from those contact areas. I, imagine, I can imagine you, and I've seen you play, so I know you are, the sort of player who will make a tackle, get up, make a tackle, get up, make a tackle and so on. Does that style of rugby predispose you to a much higher injury rate and and therefore layoffs? Or is that me making an oversimplification? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's hard to definitely say, right? And it's interesting that that was the way that I was described. I suppose it was very accurate. And someone you mentioned... I mean, it's certainly a compliment. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean absolutely. I'm very proud of it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm very proud of it. And... Someone that, so like, if I told you the person that I modelled myself on as a player and I always thought and dreamt of trying to be like was Martin Johnson. And if you look at, say, how he was as a player and how he was as, in his career, you know, there were probably some similarities. Obviously, he was way better player than me because he won the World Cup for England and I've not done that. Yeah, but, yeah, you haven't yet won. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you know, that's... That was... And, and you sort of say, like, you take a look at his career and I know that he was in between that gap of amateur rugby when the game went professional and all the rest of it but he didn't seem to get too many long sustained periods out from the game with injury and I did and I found that actually that probably did make a relation there was a relationship there between injury and how I played the game because ultimately you know as you alluded to I was fully aware even from six years old when my dad was coaching the under sixes under fives at Chipstead Rugby Club that I was not the most talented player on the pitch. I never was, even when playing touch rugby, you know, when we were that size, was able to sprint and run the whole length of the pitch. I was never the player that could 
pass the ball 20 metres off of their left and right hand. At whatever age group that I played at from when I was little, I was always that person that was willing to put their body on the line first and continue to do that through the whole match and do it week in, week out. And I think that it was something that actually, weirdly enough, when I think about it, I, th I had an answer prepared in my head then as you asked me that question and it's changed as I'm speaking because I've realised I didn't used to get injuries when I was... 16, 17, 18, I'd get as many injuries as the other person, you know, just the odd yeah, yeah. little couple of week out. I wouldn't get, you know, long sustained periods. I then went to play, and I love, obviously, love, as you probably know, I loved my rugby at John Fisher. That was my everything. I lived, that was, I just, even now, I've never played a game of rugby that I've enjoyed more than any game that I played at Fisher. Like, that's genuine, you know, even my first game on Sky Sports. Like, that you know, there's no comparison to playing schoolboy rugby, and that was because yeah, I loved course, it. Yeah. Now, moving on from that, and sort of in reference to the injury, it's weird because as I then was playing like for university, I was getting picking up more injuries, and I was those injuries were keeping me out for longer periods, and longer periods, and longer periods, and I'd have a shoulder or dislocated shoulder, and then an opt op on the shoulder, and and yeah, granted, as I'm getting older, I'm playing against bigger blokes and. You know, I'm the the s the strength and conditioning side of it is coming more into play, but actually, I wonder and I kind of think about it now. Did I have longer periods out from the game, and did I mentally think I was injured when I actually wasn't? You know, so for example, I remember when I was playing at John Fisher when we were in the sixth form, and I remember distinctively dislocating my shoulder, and I distinctively remember. One of the physios coming on the pitch and saying, your shoulder is, I'm not going to swear, F, expletive. <laughs> and I remember lying on my side and rolling around until it went back into the socket and continuing to play the game. I would never have, and I did. I had the same thing happen to me at Cardiff Met. I dis dislocated my shoulder and I had, you know, long period of time out of the game. Was it because I, I was more passionate about playing rugby for John Fisher? Now I probably think it might have been. And those small injuries that a lot of like top players you hear, retired players usually now talk about like playing with injuries and all that sort of stuff. I don't think I I don't think mentally I was doing that for the team that I was playing at at that time, so Cardiff Met or London Scottish, because there was an external reward for the rugby. Whereas when I was yeah. at John Fisher there was no external reward for the rugby. I did that every week because I loved it and I loved playing with my mates and I was proud to play for my school every weekend and that that was it even when I was at Cardiff Met yes I wasn't getting paid to play uh, but there was the external reward was my future career and that was all I was ever thinking about yeah. was myself when I played rugby for them and actually I don't think I was I was probably only ever I only ever reached maybe 70% of my potential when I was at university for that reason because okay. I needed to be and I, even now I realise I need to be playing rugby somewhere that I love and for with mates that I love and I wasn't for my three years at Cardiff mm. and it was all about myself and that was maybe why I didn't get as much out of it as I wanted yeah I mean you not getting as much out of it as you wanted is still what first 15 caps here yeah yeah it did and yeah and playing a high level yeah true true but my aspirations and you've got to remember that when I left school I'm there knocking on the door for Harlequins, which also came completely out of the blue. Like I wasn't part of this academy, yeah. molly coddled 
you know, we went to a state's run-of-the-mill state school, a good rugby state school, but still a state school, and was miles off of your, the likes of your Whitgifts and your Dulledges and these other big private schools. And so it was ingrained in me and us John Fisher boys that you just sort of put your head down and got on with it, and that that manifested on the rugby pitch and off of it as well. Um, and what ended up happening there was was that I was so my expectations were that I was just going to be like I had in my head when we was playing under 16 rugby and I was the 18 captain I know I might play some first team rugby and then probably just play for John Fisher old boys and enjoy getting yeah getting steaming on the weekend or whatever <laughs> but but actually then all of a sudden the Harlequins thing came up and my ambitions became, and, and it did change and I remember because I remember thinking when we were like year 10 year 11 oh, I'm not good enough for this and I hadn't had any interest I played a bit of county rugby but I hadn't had any interest from South East hadn't any interest from Harlequins and I remember seeing actually I'm not but then all of a sudden it re-sparked so my my goals sort of came back alive to what I wanted them to be when I was yeah. five years old Okay. And you know, and so sort of, I'm sorry, going off a bit kid a little bit. In terms of where the injuries come from, it was all about who I was playing for and what that meant to me, and what effect that maybe had on me mentally. It's funny because I mean, you talk about um, so maybe having less injuries at school because you covered them up and because mm. you would, you know, play on and so on. Mm. But that still, for me, still alludes to that attritional style of rugby which I mentioned. So your body taking that continual punishment. Yeah. And I think one thing I've learned, and I think I've learned it mentally, but haven't yet really applied it physically, but eventually it all catches up to you. Mm -hmm. So having multiple injuries and playing on, playing on with a minor knee sprain or, yeah. you know, a slightly, well, dislocated shoulders, not a minor yeah. injury, but like a, like, a, like a damaged shoulder or, you know, a minor head knock, all these things, eventually they catch up to you. And then maybe it's only when you get to your mid-20s or late-20s or certainly in your 30s, suddenly you you have these just compound injuries. And you look at so many rugby players now, later in their career, those who've had good professional careers with state-of-the-art medicine and physiotherapy, eventually it still catches up to you, by all accounts. So. Yeah, and I, th I think, actually, if you said to me now, though, would would you change how you how you were at that stage in your life how, would you would you think about it more if you knew about like the long-term effects of all these like small head knocks and little injuries that you were picking up and ignoring i would never ever 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 to the day i die i've changed that because like i said it even now as i'm sitting here like 25 years old i they are still by far my fondest memories. You know, even now, literally, as of even last night, I was chatting to you know Joe, a couple of the guys that we went to school with and played in that first team. With. Like, even if I was to meet up, the first thing we talk about are those memories, and they will stay with me for the rest of my life, no doubt. And I think I think that's a that's an angle I think most rugby players would take. I think I, I think you struggle to find a rugby player, amateur or professional, who would probably change any part of that career because your your journey to professionalism or whatever the end point is all those memories along the way are so important like, yeah, I don't think anyone would change it no and it's true but then actually do you know what I think was really unique about me and our memories as like schoolboy rugby players was that I don't think that there was many other schools in the country that had manifested the same mentality that we had at that age and that was why we were successful as a team that's why we went to you know st joseph's rugby festival with you know 
as you've listed half of them on that list with the likes of James Chisholm, Benno Urbano, Alex Lindbergh and all those amazing players that went to these private schools. Mm. Even at that stage in their rugby careers, it was all about gearing them up to being the next Brian O'Driscoll, the next Chris Robshaw. They that was what they they that because the Harlequins and these professional clubs were going into their schools and were manifesting those um those potential careers whereas for us we were just a group of mates from South London who had Welsh teachers at school and we just loved playing for each other and we that was why we sort of overachieved for what we should have yeah. achieved you know you had that you had that chip on your shoulder absolutely and, was, and uh, so valuable and yeah and that that, yeah. that chips now as I'm moving into more of a professional career in teaching and stuff like sometimes I I that chip on my shoulder lets me down a little bit but actually it's part of my identity and I'm really proud of it and especially when it comes to sport and especially when it comes to rugby got a chip on that dislocated shoulder <laughs> chip, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's lots of chips <laughs> on it <laughs> yeah so, so most rugby players I know can't wait to list their long list of injuries I suppose it's probably a throwback to some sign of masculinity hmm. um, so go on then tell me your list and <laughs> when and why well uh, where do I start? Uh, obviously, uh, there's been lots of sort of smaller, minor injuries, which you know, like broken fingers and broken toes and all that sort of stuff. Which I wouldn't broken noses and all that sort of stuff. So I wouldn't really call those layouts. I suppose the merely, the biggest merely, merely a flesh wound. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> broken dislocated finger you can play. But I mean, things like I had a lot of I've had a lot of issues like with my ankles over the years. So got two operations on my ankle uh two two operations on my shoulder left shoulder um i've dislocated my knee and then sort of most recently tore my acl and mcl which has actually weirdly been one of the better things that's happened to me in terms of injuries just just quickly describe those injuries for people who don't understand yeah so yeah so sorry so um my ankle injuries were basically just um, what you would call like a, a roll of an ankle and then the ligaments become loose. Yeah. Um, but when you're playing professional sport and you're training every day, those injuries that to maybe your average Joe sportsman that can have time to recover, you don't necessarily get that same time to recover because you're on feet a lot. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it actually might weirdly even though you're getting the phys the physio support and all this S&C work sometimes it actually might make it worse I found so that was my an my ankles um, I dislocated my patella which is basically your kneecap um, when I was like 18 and again that then causes instability within the joint um, and then dislocated my shoulder uh, one, oh, I don't know a couple of times I think maybe three four times I don't know how many times so then again because of the same sort of reason with the ankle the ligaments become loose and you need it sort well, of well once you do it once it's yeah yeah exactly I remember there's a guy I can't remember his name actually a guy from Fisher who had um, a history of like bad shoulder injuries and pretty much every time in training gave him a touch oh Lewis um yeah, Lewis, I can't remember his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's his arms hanging out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah once yeah, it goes, yeah. it goes. That's it, that's it. it. So I I had that happen to me. And then, then, you know, like I said, the most recent one, ACL, which is your uh, cruciate ligament in my knee, um, which was, interestingly, the same knee that I dislocated 
all those years back um, and the medial crucial ligament so effectively I needed almost like a whole knee reconstruction um, but like I said was actually sort of a good thing if that makes sense um, in terms of like where it led me now in terms of what I'm doing and the ability to give me a bit of time away from the game um, so actually it was kind of a bit of a blessing in disguise I think um, I think Dom spent too much time with the Welsh rugby team as a school because <laughs> despite the fact of being freezing in November he sat, he sat here in shorts you know, for no valid reason and I can see I can see the scars actually on your oh, on yeah, your knee yeah. the scars you showed from, from those injuries um, okay so let's dig a little bit deeper into that um, perhaps the mental side of some of those injuries I read this interview quite recently with a, with a rugby player called Dylan Hartley for those of you who don't know he was England rugby captain uh, played for Northampton. Um, don't think he ever actually played for the Lions in the end, did he? Due to mm, yeah, you know, his misdemeanours. But, uh, yeah, yeah. but yeah, a great rugby player. It was an interview in The Guardian, actually, written by Donald McCray. And he had a couple of interesting quotes. He starts off by saying, rugby is great for the soul, but terrible for the body. Which Dom, I'm sure can testify, yeah. is very true. Yeah. There's lots of positivity yeah, yeah, comes so... from rugby. It's a great sport, great people. But I don't think anyone can honestly stand here and say it's good for your body long term to be a rugby player um, the more the more and more you see particularly amateur level rugby players in their 30s who look like they're in their 60s yeah yeah and that's a very common occurrence no offence to uh, any 30 year old rugby players I know <laughs> um, and then he also talks about it's quite a good phrase I think he says rugby normalises pain and injuries and what he means by that is in rugby a, an injury is no longer a big deal like in other, it's perhaps in other sports where normal works of life. He said, you'll come off, like Dom just said earlier, about um, broken toes, broken fingers, broken nose. Whatever. They're not even counted as injuries. They're just merely minor problems. They're not even on the injury list. Um, whereas a normal person in everyday work and life would say, oh, a broken nose is a, is a big deal. Um, and that's really interesting. And finally, he, towards the end, he talks about, he gives quite good examples. He says, if you break your leg in normal life, it's a rehab process of about 18 months. You break your leg in professional rugby, you're expected to be back within about six weeks. Um, mm. And that, well, A, is testament to, you know, great medical care and physio care and mm. surgery, etc. But ultimately, it just shows, shows that if you play rugby for a long period of time, amateur or professional level or semi-pro or whatever, your body is taking continual punishment. Yeah. And to draw a parallel between my life and general athletes or general sportsmen amateur professional where do we choose to draw that line and so Don where have you found you've drawn that line is there a point where you go if um, you know if I'm having repeated knee injuries that's too much when you look at professional players now you look at Dylan Hartley and his his uh, current state of retirement I mean he says he wakes up most night, uh, most nights has to have blood syringe from his ears because yeah. he's got such a build up of blood around his ears um, you can, you know, these, some of these players can barely walk upstairs they can yeah. barely pick up their kids and these guys are like in the mid 30s mm. so at what point looking at long term injuries do you go enough's enough or um, I need to do more to avoid that long term problem well I think I think sort of the fir the first point on that is that it's going to be hard for me to make a direct comparison with Den Hartley because I haven't played rugby at that top level of the game you know and ultimately the pure physics of it is that 
the guys that are playing in the Premiership and in top 14 and in the top league across Europe are absolute monsters. And yes, I had to face some absolute monsters in Wales and in the Championship. Um, but actually, the intensity at which I was doing it wasn't quite at that stage. Now, doesn't mean to say that my view on it isn't the same because I actually, I sort of agree with a, a lot of what Dylan Hartley's saying and then it's sort of come to fruition now with COVID that um, I didn't think that I would miss rugby. Sorry, I thought I would miss rugby a lot mm. before COVID. So if you told me a year ago that this COVID, this small disease that had taken started in Wuhan was going to stop us and be where we're at now and meant that we wouldn't be able to play rugby. I didn't think I'd miss it. Now. And the reason why I haven't missed it ultimately is because I haven't missed getting up out of bed on a Monday morning to go to work and not being able to feel my shoulders or yeah. limping down the road and not being able to go to the gym pain-free or you know not being able to do certain things in my daily routine that at the moment I'm doing pain-free and very happily. And, you know, as well as the injury side of things, I've realised for the first time in my life, maybe, you know, sort of, well, from when I've had control of my own body and what I ate and what I didn't eat, so maybe, I don't know, from my like late teens, 15, 16, mm. actually, I quite like not having to worry about, right, what calories, calories am I putting in my body and what am I... What's my training looking like and what am I doing in the gym and do I always have a protein source in my food? And I realised the reason why I was doing all those things isn't because I care loads about my body. It's yeah. because I was doing it because I needed to for rugby. It's a means to an end. Yes, so. exactly. And I always knew. So I needed to always be above between you know 105 kilos and that was my minimum weight. And at the moment, I'm very happy at being 95 kilos, a little bit overweight, like fat and... But I'm not really bothered, and I'm, I'm I'm fit within my own body, and like I can still. I've I went for a five k ten. I've been going for five k ten k runs, something I've never had the opportunity to. Do. And I actually realised I really enjoyed that. I never did that when I was training for rugby because it wasn't necessary. You know, I was doing all my own other training. It was everything was geared around rugby. Yeah. And I've I've not missed that. I've been playing a lot of golf and relaxing and doing different sports and spending my time away from rugby. And I've not missed it as much as I thought I would. And maybe that is a direct link to the injuries and how I feel within my body, but also mentally, you know. People for sort of talk a lot about, especially rugby and the the whole strong masculine side to the game that there is and that, that can't be ignored. But actually the fact that mentally I feel that that can be injured as well, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. you're, mentally you can have a dent and that have a big effect on you for the rest of your life on your daily routines and whatever else you do so um if you can i don't know i don't know it, it, it's, it's difficult to say but I, I sort of wholeheartedly agree with a lot of what with what dylan hartley's saying yeah no of course and i said i think you look at short-term injuries and this is i mean the ability just to sort of play through pain is one thing and that's something which i found myself mm. so yeah you can go to the gym and your knee hurts but you're still going to do some weights or you can go for a run despite the fact that your hamstring's a bit tight and those are like yeah. short term problems but then I think when you look at the long term issues and you're thinking like right so I can I can play with my hip for the next you know 10 years and be fine but if I was told but by the time you reach 35 you'll basically be barely able to walk properly mm. and then you've got the rest of your life 
with major hip pain and you've spent every day of your life in serious pain, then you've got to start to evaluate, is it worth it in yeah. the short term? Ahead. And then what's interesting, actually, just to, before you interrupt, I'm going to say, does it make a difference with where that line is drawn when money comes into it? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's quite clear because... But I'll, I'll, there's no bones about it. I'll, I'm happy to share this information. When, when I was assigned professional rugby player, mm. I was then first year I was earning ten thousand pound a year. Second year I was earning twelve thousand pound a year. Now, I and, could, that, and that's sorry, that, that's in the league. I'll just in, I'll just yeah. uh, just to point out so people don't really understand. Let's see how rugby works. Unlike football, rugby has got a pyramid, and for those of you who can't see, I'm putting that in uh, brackets. Quotations, yeah. A pyramid that is pretty poor really it goes from premiership to championship to uh, national one national two and then down the leagues um officially both the premiership and championship are full-time professional leagues mm. i think if anyone understands the sport at all knows that's not the case premiership players can look to earn um i mean very good money over the course of a year i mean some of them up, millions, up to yeah yeah, yeah. More, uh, more than that I mean, some of the best players in premiership are earning up to a million a year um if you include like england fees and so on um but championship players, like like Dom, often don't know much at all. I mean, you you said ten to twelve grand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I read reports saying some players that as little as four yeah, grand. Yeah. And the, the championships still claim that it's a fully professional league. I mean, four grand a year is not a professional no. salary. That's a semi-pro at best. Yeah, at four and grand a year. I mean, quite frankly, like the RFU are an embarrassment and a bit of a joke when it comes to like putting players through that and look I signed the contract don't get me wrong and all these pl we're as players we're just as responsible for the lack of wages as everyone else because we're, we're still signing the contract signing, yeah, exactly. exactly so so the whole time you've got people signing the contract and willing to play for that then it's going to stay like that now the problem with it is that and this is something we'll go on to a bit more so I'm just, I'm just getting off kill a little bit but it is that actually when I was training, we'd our, our training week would look similar, something like this. Basically, train Monday, train Tuesday. You'd always get a Wednesday off. You train Thursday, you'd get a Friday off. Maybe a little team run in the morning, and then you play on the weekend. And that was that was my week when I was at London Scottish for two years. So what I would do is I would train Monday all day, train Tuesday all day, go to work on a building site from eight o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning till whenever it was dark on a Wednesday, train on a Thursday do the same hard labour on a Friday and then play on a Saturday. Now, there was no wonder I was picking up loads of injuries when yeah. that was what I was physically putting my body through every single week. Yeah, you add in getting having a couple of beers on a Saturday night and then having to squeeze every bit of, you know, I had to live with my parents, you know, I was lucky I could, they sort of helped me out, but I couldn't, I couldn't live and rent a flat you or any of that money. That. You can't live on that money. So what that means is, is that what you... Can, what you can literally physically give to that training time which you would spend doing prehab so like protecting your body from from um, injury yeah. and and what you would put into training is it's physically less because I'm having to drain myself also on a building site on a Wednesday and a Friday just to make ends meet and, and so if I had the money so if then I was able to be paid a fair wage let's say I don't know £30,000 your whole approach is different because I don't go to work then on that Wednesday. I don't go to work then on that Friday, and then I can look yeah. after myself. So there's there the the way the finances then are having an effect on how you are looking after yourself and what effect you can and what 
um, you know, and how much you can then give yourself an opportunity to progress. Because there was times when I remember quite clearly thinking, "F this, I'm get, you know, I don't even get a thousand pound a month." You know, and and I'm dragging myself and over to Teddington, which was like taking, and I didn't have, couldn't even afford to drive a car, so I had to get the train, and it would take me like an hour and a half, two hours sometimes, and and you're doing even the training days, they're like long days, you know, and it was tough, and so the line is drawn at, for me now. I I kind of like again, I was part of it, and I shouldn't sort of slate them too much because it, it's helped me now with my new career. But I kind of like laugh at those guys that are playing Championship rugby for that money. Because they think that they're something that they're not, yeah. and I did. So did I. So did I. Well, but yeah, actually, you step back, haven't you? Sometimes you do. And 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 if I could go back to myself when I was twenty-one and had just signed this, I would have done a couple of things differently. But actually, I probably would have said, "Come on, that you you don't need to. You don't need. You know, they quite after that first year." There was obviously never any chance of me re-signing my Harlequins. Right, go and do something different with your life. Mm. Luckily for me, that, that did end up happening anyway, and I'm still involved in a great, what I always wanted to do sort of on the side, which is why I went to university, which was teach. Um, and that's all happened very luckily out for me anyway. But, you know, I look at some of these guys now, and especially even with the COVID times, and there's even more financial instability within the RFU. I just think, what are you doing? You know? Yeah, so I'm conscious we're starting to stray into that rugby podcast which Sorry. I'm trying to avoid. Yeah. And no, 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 there's nothing wrong. It's a great conversation. In fact, we could probably sit for hours and discuss the issues of the RFU and the issues yeah, yeah. with the professional side of the game and then how that's also been affected by COVID and you know players taking wage cuts and academy players taking wage cuts. Yeah. And there's so much we can talk about on that subject. And we won't for now. But just to finish off this little sort of segment and this thought about Dylan Hartley, etc., um, which of these players do you reckon um, would have the best? What's a good what's the way to put it? Have the best um, protection? So a professional rugby player yeah. who's playing um, day in day out, professional level, with obviously great access to S and C coaches and um, and physiotherapy, but playing at that sort of high level. You as a championship player who's obviously gained some of the benefits you get from professionalism, like you have those training days, you're having some money which you can potentially invest into ways to help you recover and you're having access to some, mm-hmm. some medical treatments some mm-hmm. physiotherapy and some of those benefits you get from that. Mm-hmm. It's called, it's called mm-hmm. it semi-pro, so I think calling it pro is um, is wrong, really. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, if we look at this third category of an amateur player, but at high levels, so we'll say like, you know, National League 2, so like yeah. a, a good level of, of amateur level, um, but they're working all week and they haven't got access. They've only got, you know, the training nights and they train twice a week in the evening. But yeah, yeah. Who, which of those players do you reckon is actually the most, and which is probably pretty obvious, probably the professional, but which of those is probably the least protected? Is it you as a semi-pro or I de- you as an amateur? I definitely think it's the least protected is those players in that championship bracket, in that middle bracket, because you're... It, we, you know, I laugh at sometimes... I, I do sometimes laugh at people like Dylan Hartley because, oh, yeah, he's, yeah, he's moaning about... Not moaning, but he's sort of making statements about his injuries and stuff and... So out for him, he got paid his he got paid his five hundred thousand pound a year or whatever he was on yeah. salaried for however many years. And don't get me wrong, he had to work hard for that, and he deserved it. I'm not he taking had, anything he had away had from private him. medical cover. But there's exactly you know he had the greatness. Of, I'm still getting chased for a medical bill on my ankle that London Scottish was supposed to pay. What how long was that? Four four years ago. 
Mm. You know, I'm still getting chased for that money because they weren't able to sell it. Actually, that's wrong. So did just get a sale, man. But what my point is is that there wasn't the protection. It was not the club's fault it, because there was no, there's no, there's no like net of protection which the Premiership clubs have. Now I look at like say you know your likes of your Dylan Hartley and I think that was part and parcel of what they did. They knew what they were. They were always that's always part of the game at that level. And then if you sort of look at, say, and where I'm at now, that top end of amateur rugby, they're also in a nice position because they don't have to do it. You know, they're not they're not getting paid to play rugby or if they are, it's, you know, petrol money or whatever you call it, expenses. You know, so they can, they, they can base everything in their... So they can make a decision. Everything that they base their decisions around is their, their life, you know, yeah. their children, their family, their girlfriends, their wives, their husbands, whatever, you know, and that's what their protection is. The professional players, their, their, their professionalism comes first. Mm, and then that middle bracket, you're in that horrible in-between. Do you see what I mean? And that was where I was at. So that yeah. was, like I said to you, I made reference to my ACL injury being one, almost like the best thing that happened to me. It did because it came at a time when I was playing at amateur standard. I got, I was lucky. I got professional care because I was in this semi-pro. So I got that professional care, got the top surgeon to sort it out. Luckily, the rugby club that I was playing for in Old Eltamians had the finances to support me. Paid the £13,000 for my knee, which was more than what I was salaried on at London Scottish, yeah. which is crazy. And then I got the physio support, but then also I was able to still make a decision on whether I wanted to play rugby or not. And actually, the reason why I decided to go ahead and get my ACL fixed wasn't because I wanted to continue playing rugby for that season or the following season. It was because I'm a PE teacher and I need to be able to run. I need to be able to demonstrate certain yeah. things to, to the children when I'm teaching and stuff. So that was why I got it done, not to play rugby. Okay. Um, yeah, no, that's, uh, that, is, that is really fascinating. Um and it's something we're going to touch on a lot more in the next uh, little part. We're going to take a little break, though, I think, because um, I am freezing. Uh, I can't feel my hands anymore. So I want to take just a little break just to uh, recover, and then we'll be back, OK? Right, so we're, we're back. Um, I am slightly warmer than was before, but... We're going to wrap this up pretty hmm. soon, I hope. Um, so let's just go back. Uh, so you played London Scottish, and then you're in your second season there. You had various injuries and some layoffs, um, as well as other complications <coughs> on and off the pitch. And then you chose not to extend your contract. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think um, perhaps a healthy Don McGeeky might have made a different decision, or was that entirely not to do with your performance on the pitch? Um it was something that was in my thought process throughout that whole final year of London Scottish. I was looking for an opportunity to get out, basically, because I couldn't see my career going where I wanted to. Couldn't see, you couldn't see your career as a full-time rugby player? No, going no, no, I felt so far off there. Okay, so on that note, and also with the, the injuries we discussed, do you think rugby clubs, in particular championship clubs, do enough to protect their players for after rugby, whether that be after rugby, after a long career mm-hmm. in retirement, mm-hmm. or whether that be due to injury or yeah. anything. Uh, it's not their fault, but absolutely not. 
you know, um, there's just no support whatsoever, and that's. Because listen, let's not forget, you already had a degree. So yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've made that, that decision. So there are plenty of players who might be younger than you, yeah. or gone straight from school into there who have no oh. qualifications, and all they have on their CV is some experience. Yeah, on. and that's even worse. I mean, like I say, I was lucky because I had that. Un- I had my undergrad degree, and I, I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of my parents for, for making me. They didn't make me, you know, together making sure that I had that education. You know, you know me, I'm not the sharpest tool of the box, but I still made sure that I got an education um, because that's now allowed me to just smoothly transition into teaching. But at that time, that was a big decision because Harlequins were knocking on the door and it was like, should I go to uni? Should I stick around with the Harlequins and get an academy contract? Didn't quite work, you know. Mm. And I, I, I was quite stern with the Harlequins and made sure that I was going to go to university and do that sort of stuff. So that was a big decision at the time, which I'm now very thankful for. Um, but yeah, so I mean, like that sort of life after rugby, or even if it's not like because people, when people say life after rugby, people would just think of an, someone that is retiring from the game because their body is finished and they are. 30 in their late 30s let's say and they've had a long lustrous 15 career 15 year career or whatever and earned a bit of money out of it yeah mine was after two years or a year and a half where i needed a life after rugby support and Mm -hmm. there wasn't that and that's why that's why as you already alluded to it isn't properly professional but i was lucky in terms of how the opportunity came about in the contacts but the undergrad first of all gave me a massive stepping stone for that but then secondly, actually, my reputation of playing and having exposure of playing rugby at that level, even if it was limited for that two years and being involved with London Scottish for two years, get, opened the door for me to go to Old Eltamians, which was a league below, but has just completely changed my life. So that um, they gave you opportunity to be a teacher as well as a rugby player? Yeah, yeah. So they were going to pay me... They were going to, basically, I was paid more than double my salary at London Scottish to be a trainee teacher at Eltham College, which was... And it's only one year... Uh, one yeah, one year below, PGC. Right? Yeah, one league below. Yeah. One year PGC. So mm-hmm. the PGC basically is the teacher qualification. Uh, I would do that on site at Eltham for the year whilst playing semi-professional rugby and pick up also extra match bonuses and all that, all that you know, other stuff that comes with it and kit and all the rest of it. So it was just an absolute no-brainer. And funnily enough, you know, I must say this, the day before I got that call from Sam Howard, who was the first uh, first team coach, a uh, director of rugby at OEs, I um, had actually been for an interview in the city to do um, some horrible, uh, what was it, um, what's the job that everyone's doing at the um Selling, selling work. Oh, what's it called? Um, what's it called? I can't remember. Anyway, some right, job in the me. some paper pushing job in the city. Oh, which, okay. Um, I can't remember. That's going to really bug me now. But you know, <laughs> it wasn't a proper job, basically, and okay. and it wasn't a career that I wanted. But I had to. I was finding it out from rugby. So yeah. it wasn't until Sam came came knocking on my door that 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 came about so to join. I, think. I suppose actually, rather than being a step like down in rugby. It almost saved your rugby yeah. career, right? You, you could have walked away altogether. Massively. I was happy to walk away from it altogether and join John Fish Roll Boys and mm. and you know, a bit like like I alluded to earlier, there there was something that had changed, you know, 
when I was 18, 17, 18, it was Harlequins coming to the door. This time it was OEs coming to the mm. door, you know? Okay. Um, all right, so yeah, so I think finally in terms of this injury part of the show, I just want to touch on, so you're now a, a coach and a teacher full-time. Yeah. Um, has your opinion on injuries, and in particular serious injuries, like head injuries, etc., has that now changed, now your responsibility has changed? <sighs> or in other words, has... Do you view your players or your your, your your students in a different light to how you viewed your teammates when it comes to injuries? Uh, it's hard. It's with children, yes. With children, I've like I said, I've taught from under sevens, so eight, seven years old, six years old, up to eighteen and men. And I think with children, especially with the the science and more knowledge we have around head injuries and stuff now, yes, massively, all the way up to 18. I don't think, I don't think even when we were sort of in our teenage years growing up, there wasn't as much knowledge about head injuries and stuff. And I think that that was important at that time. And if I could go back to a 14 year old self and I've just had a head knock, instead of just shaking it off physically, literally shaking it. I actually wish I would have taken that step back. Now, don't get me wrong. I haven't had any, long-term concussion issues yeah. i might do in 20 years time who knows but exactly. but i do think that that's more important in regards to the other sort of injuries that i made reference to about that i would sort of almost get on with that wasn't they were never sort of conscious decisions that i made it was literally that was just ingrained in what i did mm. and it's only now i think about it that they were and that i realized that they were not conscious decisions and i i actually think that's what rugby is all about and i don't think that that should change at whatever level no, that's really interesting. So, so I'm saying, if you were if you were coaching now and you had an under 18s game, and one of your players was doing let's call it the Don McGeeky, so you had a, they had a shoulder injury and they're yeah. trying to fix it there and then yeah. and play on and be that selfless, inspirational captain <laughs> that was listed in the article. <laughs> would you, as a coach now, look on that and go, right, Dom? It's for your best. You take a break, or well, we, need to, we need to take you out of this game. Or yeah, yeah. are you still zapping a tear to your eye? And you go, oh, go on, son, carry yeah. on. This is what I want to see. Well, you break there you through. go. I've got the, there's a perfect example. I was coaching the OE's Colts when I was recovering from my knee injury, and um, he the night before the final, the cup final, we went to a bowling alley, and he, you know, those stupid punch bag things that he's punched this bag, and it's literally sliced in between his two knuckles all the way up to the middle of his forearm like proper gash you could see his knuckle like where the skin was so oh God. peeled open so and he was our best player he was our captain good lad really tough lad and he was like well I'm playing tomorrow I was like you can't play tomorrow like his, his honestly it was murder we let him play <laughs> which was the wrong decision because he actually played terribly because his arm was so bad but I wasn't going to take that opportunity away from him. It was the cup final. It was being played at um, Worcester Warriors Stadium, six ways. Yeah, it was a massive occasion for them. It was everything they geared up to all year. They were unbeaten all year. I wasn't going to take that opportunity away from him. Mm. And even now, they we lost that final, and he didn't play very well. And But if I asked him, would you have rather me taking you out of that game? He still, well, even no, though that play. all of that had happened, he still would have said the same thing. So and And if I was him when I was 18... I would have been the same way. So I don't I don't think you can. Obviously they're safeguarding things like if you think it's gonna cause them like long term damage, which you could argue that could have. But 
I wasn't his teacher, I was his coach and he was 18 years old. So, so there was a different side of it. He still technically had the legal obligation to make whatever decision he wanted. Now, if I had a 13-year-old with my school rugby team now, it's a different story. Do you see what I mean? Because I have a responsibility to look after them. Yeah, but I mean, taking away the legal and um, professional role you have, just purely from a personal ethical ethical yeah, point of view just from a personal point of view do you do you feel maybe you wish a coach would said to you some of the injuries when you were younger let's take a little no. break you, you wouldn't no and you therefore wouldn't want to push that on someone else no. either do you know what a lot of people especially like players and you talk about like players that have like made it in the top level of the game like the people that used to try and like pull me back the most were my mum and dad mm. and like it's normally the other way around for the players that are like they were you know real like it was yeah. like push, not push you know almost like oh you know always in, whereas like my mum and dad were like very encouraging and always were supportive of me and stuff but like well my, you know oh you've hurt your leg no you don't need to play you know it was like they had to rein me back a little bit because that was just the mindset I just always wanted to be involved like because I wanted to do the best I could you know what I mean so I had that from home and because I was getting that from home, I, I wouldn't want it from anyone else because then it would be too much. Do you see what I mean? So if I was, yeah, no, I if I was getting my mum saying, right, you've hurt your leg, you're not playing today, and I was getting, and a teacher was saying, you know, you don't need to play, you might might lose a bit of interest with the game. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I like I like that we had Hardy, Mr. Davis, that would be like, right, boys, get stuck in, you know, like, <laughs> I, like I, I like that, I like that. Yeah, and I find it, it really fascinating, actually, if you look at a lot of professional rugby players who are retired, and in modern rugby, that conversation about player welfare and um, serious injuries is always on the agenda. Very few of them ever say, oh, they're, always, they're always on the side of keep it as it is. Let's mm. not make it safe. I mean, how safe can you make rugby? Ultimately, it's 30 blokes on each other. You can't yeah, reduce yeah. it, yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, so I suppose just to, just to finish, really, I want to just have a brief touch on... Um, I said I think the scope for this series of podcasts is I like to try and gain something myself from each episode. So, is there any advice you might give me as an athlete based on my injury record from your experience that would benefit me? Yeah, I think um, I don't know. I mean, I would say that that you can. The, the, the biggest thing that I've learned over recent times is that, and and as a as an amateur semi professional amateur rug player if you like now to like learn from every injury that I've had yeah. and so that that would be my biggest bit of advice would be like what is what is what is it you're trying to achieve you know is like you say we're talking about drawing that line you know is putting your body through that much pain um, and anguish that would affect your daily routines and your daily life to play sport is it worth it you know Yes, for me, when I was 18 playing school rugby, it was worth it. Is it worth it now? Maybe not. You know, can't. That's why, like, I might not travel up to, like, I remember the end of last season, I didn't bother travelling up to Hull and back because, yeah, I was going to get paid 300 quid for it or whatever, but it wasn't worth the. I would have to take a day off school on the Friday and then being absolutely knackered for the rest of the week. You know, those little things. There's what's important to you in your life. Is is, mm. is and that goalpost might change in time. And for me, at the moment, right now in my life, the most important thing is having stability with my career and doing the best I can with my teaching career and progressing with that. 
and then having happiness outside of that with my family, yeah. with my girlfriend, with my friends. Do you see what I mean? And keeping that. Yeah. And that definitely wasn't, that wasn't something I considered at all when I was in that rugby bubble. I suppose never be scared to adjust those goalposts yeah absolutely absolutely and that was something i never really did the whole time i was in the rugby bubble it was all about i'm i was so focused on that was what i wanted to do you know and i would drive myself crazy mentally and i think people you know mental health is discussed a lot at the moment which i think is incredible and i'm a big massive advocate for it discussing mental health and stuff but i actually think I never really thought about my mental health when I was in that moment of how I used to live my life. And even now, I don't like to think about my mental health too much, even though I should, because it gets you down. Otherwise, you think about things too much, I think. And that was the mentality I had then. Now, I don't think that's necessarily the right way to go about things, Mm. but that's just the way I do. Now, the way I try and reflect is, like I said, taking a step back and seeing where the goalposts are. Um, That's really interesting. So if I was to give you... Um, if we had a time machine, right. I, I could take you back to any moment in your, your oh. rugby life. And we're going to go back there. You're not going to be watching. You're going to be playing the moment. You can't do things differently. So you can't go, oh, I want to go back to this game and I want to not yeah. make that pass or yeah, I want to yeah, win yeah. this game. All you can do is go back and just relive the emotional feeling and the emotional relation of that day. And you could choose from, let's say, a big Whitgift Fisher derby or your final game for Fisher, as you did this earlier, um, your uh, big game playing for Cardiff Met, uh, yeah. or your professional debut, um, perhaps one of your Harlequins Academy games. Where are we going? What's that moment you really want to relive one more time? Oh, that's hard. That's really hard. <laughs> uh, well, put it this way. I can't even remember who my first game was for London Scottish. So... I do now thinking about it but it wasn't no so it's nothing to do in that era it's not really anything to do do you know do you know what do you know what there's one game and it's sort of quite emotional for me um, to think about and yeah there was loads of fantastic Fisher memories as I alluded to my favourite rugby game was like say that last game at Fisher but was um, a moment that was quite personal to me and my family was um, I played a game. It was I think it was my second or maybe even my first game for Old Eltonians. And we played at home against Darlington and I had a good game. I think I got man of the match. I set up a really nice try. Uh, so, so I had a really good day. It was a great day, everyone. And I came off the pitch and my, my dad was almost in tears and my mum was in tears and... My mum cries all the time, so... <laughs> but my dad never really seen my dad get visually upset. And and I started crying and I said, God, this is amazing. And basically, we'd gone through a lot where I'd been involved in this my whole life. It was all about playing professional rugby. And the way that I've been brought up is that it's all about having stability in your life. And my dad and mum have both had to work really, really hard for what they've got. And... Um, they've never had anything given to them for free. Yeah. And neither have I, for that matter, but I've, I've had a better life than they did. Anyway, my, my point was was that the reason why that moment was special was because I had a career as a teacher that gives me stability for the rest of my life, and I was playing for a rugby club that had given me that opportunity. So I felt emotionally connected to that moment because that, that moment there and being involved in Old Eltamians and being involved... 
um, with them has, has helped change my life and has given me that stability for the rest of my life. And that sort of moment of my first game for them was a big realisation for me and my family that now my life has changed and I'm not going to be a professional rugby player and that I have a, I have a new lease of life and this is my thing now. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. It's setting me up and setting my family in the future up. Yeah, no, it's funny, actually. I, I approached this interview from the point of view of interviewing an ex-championship rugby player, professional rugby player. That was very much my stance when I approached mm. this interview. But talking to you tonight, I'm not sure if it comes across in the audio, but certainly visually, the way you've smiled and you've been <laughs> most expressive. So when you've spoken about John Fisher and then about... Um, I can't even pronounce it. Old old Altanians. Old Altanians. <laughs> OEs, yeah. Um, and actually, those are the moments it seems to be you're most proud of and most happy with and yeah. really stand out, which is strange because probably from an objective point of view, I'm probably thinking, you know, playing in the Welsh Championship or playing in the English Championship and Cardiff Met and London mm. Scottish. I'm not saying they're not proud moments for mm. you, but you'd think they would be the standout. And actually, you've, you've quite clearly revealed that perhaps your values aren't entirely based on league position or no, level of monthly. Actually, it's more about the memories you have, which, yeah. which, which I think is really... And that's, that's really why I love the game. And, you know, now I'm in teaching. And that's what I want to bring to the children. And I work at a very uh, inner city London school, Haberdashers. It's a fantastic school. And these children, I see, they are in even worse position than a lot of people that we went to school with. Yeah. They really have it hard. And I want to give them the opportunity to play rugby. And that's why I enjoy being involved in rugby at this level with them than I do maybe playing myself. Yeah, well, so I'm great. more looking forward to the game coming back when COVID goes away, hopefully, and to, to then give them an opportunity to start playing some rugby on a grass pitch and do contact than I am about playing for Blackheath. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so where do you see yourself in five years' time then? Where do you see that at the moment, let's say you're 50-50 between your professional life and your rugby life, perhaps? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's being overly optimistic. In five years' time, do you see that shifting even more towards your professional career? I definitely see that shifting more yeah. towards my professional career. I mean, and that that professional career might not actually just be teaching. Like I'm, I'm really enjoying the coaching side of things more, mm, okay. and getting involved into maybe the professional coaching side, um, which is something I'm trying to develop myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, the 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 whole giving back to the game in terms of like not so much to the game because I don't love. I don't love the people that, as you probably can tell from this podcast, I don't love the people that, I don't love the RFU, I don't love the type of people that are involved in rugby, if I'm being honest. I love the game for what it gives in terms of its values and what it's given to me in terms of it set me up mm. for my life. Yeah. If I hadn't have played rugby at a professional standard or played, been a half-decent rugby player, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to be a teacher. That's the bottom line. Or I might have, but it would have been a bit of a longer, difficult, more pro harder process. So I... I want to give these children the opportunity to play the sport that I've known and loved that they would never have been introduced to before potentially because their parents have no idea about rugby because they are living in a high story flat with five brothers and no father figure at home and so would never have get an opportunity to play rugby if it wasn't for me introducing the game to them. Yeah, well, that's really fascinating actually. And I think that theme about rugby's values comes up in so many conversations about rugby and that's really important actually in a few weeks time we're planning to have perhaps like a rugby special when we, yeah. we actually go into a rugby club itself and we talk about injuries but also just a general ethos around a rugby club and how COVID's affected that so that'd be really interesting and something we can talk a lot more about then 
Nice. Um, so I think just to just to finish, really, we've had this theme of having any other business, um, anything you know. I'm really throwing the floor open to you to talk about anything you want from the world of sport or your life in general. Is there anything you wanna you wanna talk about? Um, I mean, not really. I sort of like I said, I, I, I sort of we've spoken about a lot really, and I think making sure that people listening to this understand like the pressures that come with sport at a professional level and trying to I think we get an understanding like but you got it for me it's all about understanding like what you can achieve and where you're at so like we we spoke about all these sort of almost blind rugby players that think that they can start to earn like a good living out of playing rugby it's just not realistic and you need to sort of understand that and put what's important first and I think that when I was trying to put the rugby first and my career first, I wasn't the best person. I wasn't the best. I wasn't the best Dominic McGeeky. You know, I was doing things off of the field that I wasn't proud of. I got myself into a bit of a rut mentally, and it wasn't. And that was because I became selfish because I was just trying to achieve. It was all about me, me, me. And that was like I say, and the reason why I reflect on those important periods of my life, i.e., John Fisher and and what I'm doing now is because I'm generally more happier in my life. Do you see what I mean? Because mm. I understand what it is that's making me happy. And the thing that made me happy at that time was giving back to people that I cared about, i.e. my mates when I was playing. And now the thing I care about is giving back to the children and giving them an opportunity. So it's just about understanding what you want and what makes you happy, I think. All right, well, that's a, I think that's a great way to finish, actually. So Cheers. Um, yeah, thanks Don for coming along thank you so I much I think there's been so much we can take from that and I, I'm sure hopefully in the future we can discuss more in depth and from a personal point of view I hope it won't be another four years before we have a conversation oh, again and hopefully not. we can talk a lot more on these subjects so amazing thank cheers thanks mate thanks a lot this wasn't quite the interview I'd planned on I think I expected to find a man who was bitter perhaps about his journey into professionalism and how that ended and perhaps filled with resentment and thoughts of what could have been if it wasn't for injuries and politics but I am really pleased to see this is not the case of Dom. Dom just seems to perspirate optimism and seems to be a man content with where his life is especially with his new role in teaching and that's probably summed up best when he described his standout moments from rugby I wish Dom all the best for his future endeavours and think we can all take quite an important lesson from his message about not being scared to move those goalposts. Whether that be in sport or in life, sometimes we need to reevaluate where we are and perhaps change what we're trying to achieve. So that's all for episode number two. Finally, I hear some of you cry. And for those of you who have made it this far, once again, I thank you for sticking with it. Please check out the Instagram for more information. So that's at hips underscore and underscore dips with a Z. Um, at Mansfield Curtis and at Dominic McGeeky for more information. To keep your eyes open this time next week, for episode number three, which will be dropping on Friday morning. And until then, all I can say is stay safe. <laughs>